That video just kind of shows a little bit of what a, a typical Sunday night is like. Um, some of those students knew we were filming and some didn't. So that's the fun part. Hey, uh, good morning. It's Student Ministry Sunday. Coincidentally, it's also Cinco de Mayo, so buenos dias. <laughs> hey, uh, if you wondered why your favorite door greeter wasn't here, it's because your new favorite door greeters are here. Uh, every so often, we get a chance to sort of shine a spotlight on a, a ministry at uh, Mission View, and so today is kind of the student ministry takeover. We're called Ignite. It's a name that the students chose uh, a couple years ago about being on fire for God, and um, I let me tell you, I love being part of the part of the student ministry. I almost missed my cue to come up because I was so excited about worship. Um, let me just say, uh, if you've never considered working with students before, I, I would uh, encourage you to think about it. Um, our students are fun, they're tender-hearted, they're, they're hardworking, they're inquisitive and wise and self-sacrificing, and uh, they're, they're really funny at times. It's, uh, it's a joy to be able to work with them. A lot of people consider students to be sort of the, the future of the church, but they're also the present of the church. Um, I work with a, a great team. I, I serve as the pastor of student ministries here at Mission View, but uh, I work alongside my wife, Emily, my, my coworker, Hannah Baldridge, and her husband, John. Uh, we also work with uh, Kristen Guthrie, Matt Leonard, Nick Rochford. Uh, so if you have, be have benefited in any way from this ministry, make sure you say hello to them and uh, get to know them a little bit. Uh, that, that being said, don't be, uh, if you're interested in working with students, don't be intimidated. You don't have to be as young and, and attractive and cool as we are. Um, if you are a, a college student or you're an empty nester, you have a life experience that is valuable for a student. So uh, I'd encourage you to consider pouring into them. Our requirements are that you love Jesus and that you love students. Um, so uh, you have something to offer. Hey, this morning we are in a, a new series. Uh, we're continuing in a series that we, we started last week called A Redeeming Love Story. This is, a, 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 we're, we're trekking through the book of Luke, I mean uh, the book of Ruth, excuse me, the Old Testament book of Ruth. So if you would go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. At Ignite and at Mission View, we, we teach out of this book because we maintain the belief that this is the word of God. And despite uh, different themes and uh, different authors and despite some things being difficult to understand or some things being difficult to swallow, we still believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for us in our lives. So at face value, Ruth is kind of an, an old story, but it's much more than that at the same time. And here's, here's why I bring this up. A lot of people see this book as really two books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's not an inappropriate way uh, of looking at Scripture. Um, but I do want us to remember to see the book for the whole of what it is. Because sometimes we fall into this dangerous trap where we see uh, God as having completely two different uh, uh, characters in the Old and New Testament. Or sometimes we may even fall into the trap of thinking there is an Old Testament God and then there's a New Testament God. But in, if we do that, we kind of create some problems for us. What we need to remember is that in the Old Testament, God reveals to us bit by bit his intentions for us and his expressing promises to us. And then in the New Testament, God is fulfilling things that he said would come to pass. 
So when we read the Old Testament, we have a hopeful expectation of the future. And when we read the New Testament, we have the foundation of God's work and history behind us as we go. I kind of uh, think of it like this. If there are any ladies in here who are married, you typically wear two rings on your finger. Uh, One of them, uh, if you kind of go the route of our culture, is your engagement ring. Your your fiancé at the time proposed and expressed his intentions to marry you. He might have expressed some things he desired from uh, in marriage with you, and he's uh, proclaiming to you certain promises that he has, and then by the time the big day comes around, you are adding a second ring to your finger, and the two uh, work together as he is starting to fulfill the promises that he expressed with the first one. Uh, There's this cool image uh, that I found recently. Um, It's a little bit hard to see, but across the bottom, kind of your, your x-axis here, uh, are the 66 six books of the Bible laid out um, even uh, by chapter. So you see some are longer than others and some are shorter than others. Uh, and the lines that kind of go across as that sort of rainbow represent 63,000 cross-references throughout Scripture. It could be an Old Testament prophecy come true in the New Testament. It could be a New Testament reference to Old Testament law, or it could be two different authors conveying the same exact idea from God to two different audiences in two different places in time. And the, the, it was a Lutheran pastor and a university professor that made this, and they elected to take kind of an artistic approach. If you wanted, uh, connect with me, and I can show you a, a cool functional one where you can uh, actually look at what verses are being referenced there. But what it shows us is this is one book. It's the word of God. It represents, though it's it's comprised of smaller pieces, it's unified and represents kind of a grand narrative. There's a a thread running through every page of the book, and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're going to find in the book of Ruth is that with Ruth and Boaz. And we haven't Uh, quite encountered that character yet. Uh, As we go through the book of Ruth, we'll pick that up. But Matt picked a great title for the series, A Redeeming Love Story, which should tip us off as to where we'll find that Jesus narrative in this book. So this morning, as we read, we're going to look for the grand narrative at work. We're going to look for the intentions God intends to fulfill. We're going to look for the gospel thread that is Jesus, all right? Here's how we're going to do it. We got uh, three things we're looking at. First, the need for redemption. All right, we're talking about a redeeming love story. So we're going to look at the need for redemption, what that is, what it looks like. Second, we're going to look at the means of redemption, how we get to redemption. And finally, we're going to look at the results of redemption, what redemption ultimately brings out in us. All right, let's pray together and then we'll dive in. God, I am uh, so thankful to be here this morning uh, with family and friends and brothers and sisters uh, as the body of Christ. We are thankful for Jesus, and that's ultimately uh, what we are about here. We uh, long to worship and honor and glorify you, not just in the next hour, but uh, uh, every day of our lives. And I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to learn more about what redemption is in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matt did a great job last week of starting us off on the right foot, setting us up kind of with the context of what is happening in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 opens up with, in the days when the judges ruled. All right. This is not a a man in a gown and a wig. Uh, Judges were sort of the precursor to kings. They operated as the rulers uh, in Israel at that time. 
Um, unfortunately, though, by and large, they didn't really do a great job. Um, the relationship between Israel and God was supposed to be uh, a mutually beneficial one where they obey God and God continues to bless them as his special chosen people. But really what the Old Testament kind of became as we look at God's relationship to Israel was sort of a case study on how sin causes separation from God. Uh, there's a verse in Judges chapter 21 that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Matt kind of brought up a parallel to that uh, in our culture last week. So at one point during this period, there's a, there's a famine in Israel, and a man named Elimelech decides to move with his wife Naomi and their two sons to Moab, which was a neighboring country. And it was, in the midst of a famine, this is quite literally a grass is greener scenario. Okay, it's probably better over there. Maybe there's some food. It sounds like a good idea at first, but if you kind of know the context of what was going on at the time, God explicitly told his people not to intermingle with uh, people of Moab, which is sort of interesting. Uh, his command at the time was for them to remain in their country, to faithfully rely on him, not to go over to Moab, and certainly not to take Moabite wives. And, of course, that is what Elimelech's two sons did. They took Moabite wives. And then Elimelech dies and his sons die in Moab. So his wife, Naomi, decides she's going to head back to Israel. She encourages her daughters-in-law to go back to their parents' homes. Uh, one of them takes her up on that offer, but the other, Ruth, decides she's going to go back with Naomi. So if I were to sum up their current situation in one simple sentence, it would be this. They are far from God. Ruth and Naomi both are far from God. Geographically, they are far from God. They have strayed from the land God has given the Israelites, the, the land that God has promised them and intended for them to dwell in. They've gone away. Uh, many characters are, are faithful in the midst of famine, and you can find that in the Old Testament. But she and Elimelech went down to Moab. They married the wrong people. Even after uh, the men died, she encouraged them to go back to their families and in doing so encouraged them to go back to their false gods. So Naomi isn't even looking like a great matriarch at this time. They have no food. They are hungry. Their husbands have died, and so they're grieving. They are sad and destitute, and ultimately they have no food, no future, and no hope. I would even say that at this point, their lives are sort of characterized by two things, famine and faithlessness. And I'm sure at, at some point in our lives, maybe we have all experienced famine and faithlessness. Maybe we've experienced drought physically. Maybe we've experienced drought spiritually. Grief, pain, hardship, hunger, loss, exhaustion, anxiety, loneliness, depression. Maybe you've lost someone in your life. Maybe your, your kids put you in a compromising position and everyone knows about it. Maybe you struggle with something internally and nobody knows about it. Maybe you found yourself with no food, no future, and no hope. But then towards the end of chapter 1, things start to turn around a little bit. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She's affirming her newfound commitment to Naomi, her people, and her God, the God of Israel. 
And similarly, Naomi, too, when she comes back, she says, she says this, I went away full. I went away of my own accord. I did this thing, but the Lord has brought me back. Brought me back empty, but the Lord has brought me back. She recognizes her sinfulness before God. So they come back to Israel. They go specifically to Bethlehem, which we know about Bethlehem, around harvest time. And now we are in chapter 2. So this is, uh, this is where we are in the, in the text this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. All right, we're going to stop right there. Uh, To glean among the ears of grain uh, was kind of an Old Testament version of a food bank. Uh, It was pretty common at the time where, especially if there was a famine, if uh, men were to go out and work the fields and reap the harvest, they would leave uh, behind certain little bits of grain, and uh, people who were poor were invited to follow along and fill up their baskets full of sort of these dropped grains. So that is what Ruth is suggesting that she do. But what I want to point out is the last bit of what Ruth says. I want to go after him in whose sight I find favor. What she's doing is she's acknowledging her need for favor. She's acknowledging her need for something more. In a a season of famine and faithlessness, favor is what we need. I I grew up in a, a Christian home. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I did not grow up in a Christian home as, as a child. I grew up in a, a moral home, I would say. Uh, we got by on a, a smile and a shoe shine, meaning we cared about uh, kindness. We cared about uh, serving other people. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. We were cheesters. We dressed up for it. Um, it was a large church, so we knew like one or two other families, but otherwise we could kind of hide and not be seen and uh, we'd go, we didn't want to go, but we knew we'd go out to eat afterwards, so we were like, oh, we could do this twice a year. And my br- younger brother and I, we didn't go to the, the children's ministry area. We sat in the pews, and um, they had little pencils, so we would play hangman. And um, ultimately, my family were, the, my parents were good people who were interested in faith, but it hadn't impacted their lives to the effect that Jesus was Lord. We were raised with, with dinner table manners and, and being, being nice to the, the, the underdog and, and sticking up against, you know, against people who were bullies, but kindness didn't make up for my family's faithlessness. And then one day, it, it, was, uh, it was in the winter, it was cold, I was in third grade, it was on uh, February 27th, I came home <clears throat> from school. And it was uh, snowing out, and there's you know big snow banks because we just got the driveway plowed, and it's not key to the story, but uh, I just remember it this way. And I, I walk into our living room, and there's my uncle, my dad's brother, hugging and consoling my my crying mother. Uh, and and she came up and told me, she said, Adam, your dad was killed in a car accident. Dad, Dad's gone. He's, he's not coming back. So I'm trying to wrap that around my, my, my third grade brain. And, and ultimately what I hear is famine. 
Instant famine. If, you, if you've never had uh, somebody in your life die or, or you've never experienced something like that, you go from having plenty to having nothing. There's no dad around. Mom's got to go back to work. There's, there's four of us kids. What are we going to do? <laughs> my, my, my two older sisters and my younger brother and I, we call this the dark ages because uh, we were, some of us were a little too old for our mom to be packing our lunches, but my sweet, dear mother still did that. And... Um, we would, uh, <laughs> we would go to school for the next, like, year or two, and we would open up our lunch. <laughs> my, my mom was so scatterbrained in her grief. <laughs> our, our lunch sandwich was just two pieces of bread with nothing in it and a bag of carrots. It's famine. Well, we, we didn't go hungry or anything like that, but... You know, at the lunch table in third grade, you're trading with your friends, and I was suddenly at the bottom of the totem pole. I wasn't going to get any fruit roll-ups. <laughs> I'll trade you these two pieces of bread in this bag. <laughs> but after some time, what my mom did was she's, you know, at, at wit's end, she just decided, you know what? One Sunday morning, not Christmas, not Easter, she rounded us all up in the morning and said, hey, we're going to church. What? She said, we're going to church. Kind of like Ruth and Naomi, my mom realized, she said, I need favor. I need, I need help. Our family's got faithlessness. Our family has famine. There's got to be something more. I, I can't conjure it up from within myself. Something or someone outside of me has to be the one to come in and fix and save our family. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is a great old-fashioned American concept, but it doesn't work with God. What we need is favor. What we need is redemption. We need to be reconciled to God because here's what happened. A holy and perfect and morally excellent and good and right and, and wonderful God has created, but humanity has chosen to sin. And we've committed acts or offenses against the holy God, and that creates this separation because a good and holy and pure God doesn't participate in that. And now there's this divide. We can't conjure up enough goodness or kindness or generosity or hard work. We can't raise our kids to be good enough with their table manners to earn our way back to God. It has to come from somewhere or someone else. And that is when Jesus, in the middle of our, our utter helplessness, comes and he says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you, like me and my family, have lived a life of famine or faithful, uh, faithlessness, you need Jesus. You need the favor of God that only God can give and provide. That's the need for redemption. Let's keep reading a little bit. This is verse 3. So she, Ruth, set out, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. As I said, it wasn't uncommon for, for guests or for needy, needy individuals to work fields in Israel. In fact, there was kind of an Old Testament provision for this if you wanted to look for it. And Ruth is in kind of her early 20s, but we might be able to assume that Naomi is a little bit older, old enough to not be able to go out and work the field. So she's going out for no other reason other than to get food for her and Naomi. And notice that she's working all day. She, she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. She's working all day. Don't, don't skip over this. I remember in college I had a, I had a roommate, uh, and I was so in, encouraged and inspired by how much uh, time he spent praying uh, for his homework and for his grades and for his tests and for his assignments. And then about halfway through the year, I noticed he is praying a lot, but he doesn't study ever. And so, sure enough, his, his grades started to suffer. And similarly, I knew students who spent uh, all their time studying and never praying. And God never encourages us to be so pious as to not work. What Ruth did was she recognized her need and then set out to do what she had to do for herself and for her family. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's kind of a, a confusing passage. Isn't salvation something that belongs to God and God leads and initiates? And yes, that is true. But when we recognize our need for redemption or our need for God or our need for change or our need for something and then we sit and do nothing, it's foolish. Sometimes with our students, I'm going to use them as an example, but uh, this is true of adults as well. Uh, a student has in the past expressed to me feeling far from God. I don't feel like God is close. I, I feel distant. Distant is a common uh, word that we like to use. God just feels distant, or I feel distant. And in the midst of that distance, they don't spend any time in prayer. They never read God's word. They rarely fellowship with other believers. Here's what I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that salvation or redemption is something that is completely in our hands because it's in God's. I want to point out uh, kind of an interesting word used. Uh, in verse 3, it says, She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. If you are older than 18 and you're single, you might have at one point in your life experienced uh, a parent who is very dead set on finding you a spouse, or even just like a boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, you go to, like, Taco Bell, and your mom's like, hey, how about her? You know, you should ask her out. And I'm like, mom, she just said my pleasure, and may I take your order? I don't know her. I... <laughs> uh, the way I read this is, uh, this, this word stuck out to me because it sounds like Ruth and uh, Naomi are hatching some sort of plot for Ruth to go and meet Boaz. She just happened to come to the part of, fi of the field belonging to Boaz. Oh. It kind of sounds like it's, you know, real coincidental, right? Uh, but but I, I looked into the word, and it's used in some other places in Scripture. The, it's a Hebrew word, kara. Yes, the R is rolled 
Kara. And it's to encounter or to meet or to cause to happen. There's a couple other instances where it's used in Scripture. It's used a few times, but I'm going to point out two in Genesis. Uh, One of them is uh, a servant. Uh, Abraham sends his servant to find a spouse for Isaac. So very similar situation kind kind of happening here. And the servant says this, O Lord, my God of my master Abraham, please grant me success. And the words, grant me success, are kara today and show love and kindness to my master Abraham. And it reads like this, please cause to happen this thing. Please cause this thing to happen. This task that I'm going on, that I'm being sent on. There's another one which is uh, even weirder. It has to do with hunting. Uh, Isaac is, is kind of on his deathbed, and he's talking to Jacob uh, about going out and finding game to bring back. And he says, how is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And Isaac said, because the Lord your God granted me success or caused it to happen to me. Depending on what version you have, it might, it might read, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Though it might look coincidental, This word and these verses are implying that God is orchestrating everything. God is the one preparing Ruth to meet Boaz. In the big things like finding a spouse or in the small things like going hunting, God is ultimately sovereign and in control. This happens all the time. One of the best stories, I think, personally in the Old Testament is that of Joseph, who gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And eventually, through a crazy series of circumstances, he finds himself in prison in Egypt. And inevitably, uh, eventually, he's able to interpret people's dreams and becomes the right hand of Pharaoh as his cupbearer. And he rises to such a position of prominence and power and prestige in Egypt that he's able to affect a lot of change. And one of the things he does is he decides that Egypt is going to store up their uh, warehouses of grains and food. And so then in a few years, when there is a famine... In the land, people flocked to Egypt, including his brothers. And what he says to them, what you intended for evil, God has worked out for good. And what he's saying is, things happen and God is ultimately in charge. We work and God moves. We move and God works. So if your marriage is on the rocks and needs redeeming, you need to work hard. You need to set your life aside for your spouse. Do whatever it takes. Go to counseling. Get a marriage book, whatever. But you also need to recognize that God is in charge of your marriage and you need to pray to him daily. If you're living in a a life of unrepentant and rampant sin and you realize that your life needs redeeming, you may need to pray that God gives you strength to fight and lean on him. If you're an unbeliever and you realize that your whole life is a famine and faithlessness and needs redeeming, start moving towards God because he's coming for you. Now the the process of working towards God, the process of work out your salvation with fear and trembling uh, may be costly for you. Ruth is in a foreign land without her family working in the fields all day. Redeeming your marriage might cost you some free time. Redeeming your life of habitual sin might cost you your phone or your laptop. Getting involved at church might cost you a varsity sporting event. 
redeeming <clears throat> your life and turning to God and being reconciled to him might cost you admiration from your coworkers. The road to redemption, though, might mean getting off the couch and getting on your knees. All right, let's see what happens next. The results of redemption, all right? This is where we're going next. Verse eight, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, don't go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Boaz shows favor to her. She mentions uh, she's a foreigner. By the way, um, Emily is from California, so when we first met, she said the same thing to me, you know. Why have I found favor in your eyes since I'm a foreigner? And Ruth begins to be blessed more than she ever anticipated, so too with my wife, you know, since we've been married. Uh, Ruth can eat and drink safely. Things aren't as bleak and hopeless as they once were, so too with my wife, Emily. She's from Orange County. It's a dark place down there. <laughs> Boaz is acting as a, an agent of God in this situation. Notice when, he, when he, we, he greeted the men that, he, that worked for him in the field, he said, the Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord be with you. When he speaks to Ruth, he calls God by name. He says, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We have a chance, if you're a believer in this room, you have a chance to be like Boaz and act as an agent of redemption for another. Now, Matt is going to talk more about Boaz next week, so come back for that. But we have opportunities to bless others, to share the name of Jesus with others. Uh, some, some very dear friends of mine live, live up in Stowe. Um, I'm sad because they're moving soon. Um, but despite knowing that they're going to be moving soon, um, they uh, heard kind of this call from their, their church. And their church is uh, doing this initiative where they're trying to um, give shelter to refugees. There's a lot of refugees, actually, in Akron. And um, uh, while they kind of work out some, some legal details and things like that, so what uh, they decided to do was uh, plug a refugee family uh, into foster homes. And my friends decided we're going to take in four, uh, a family of four from Guatemala, uh, and the, this family doesn't speak much English. They speak a little bit. And the family speaks a little bit of Spanish. Uh, so it's kind of difficult for them. Uh, they have a dad, a 20-year-old girl, and two teenage boys. Um, and recently, uh, I was talking with them, and uh, they found out that the 20-year-old daughter is pregnant. 
And so they're, uh, she got pregnant in, in Guatemala and, and is here now, and they're trying to work out the details of, of what to do and drive them to visit lawyers and drive them to go to the clinic and, and things like that. And um, I got together with my friend, who, he was my roommate in college, and I said, what, what caused you to do this? That's got to be really hard. I, I, don't, I don't know that, uh, that Emily and I could have done this. And he looked at me and he said, you know, it is difficult, but what we believe is that if the Christian can, the Christian should. It's the responsibility of believers to show Jesus to the world, and Boaz does this well. Um, by the way, after, after church, we have those little um, gifted cards this morning. Uh, these ones are kind of fun. They're for uh, a free car wash from Dad's Car Wash. Um, and there's only about 100 of them, so if you want one, you've got to grab it. It would be a mad rush to get them. Uh, I know that some people are, are hesitant about these cards. Uh, they're meant to be a tool. Um, if you feel like it's awkward... Go tell the person you're giving it to. Hey, I know this is a little bit awkward, but let me tell you about what our church is doing. You'd be surprised at how many people would respond well to that. It's an opportunity for us to act as agents of God uh, in small, practical, tangible ways. If the Christian can, the Christian should. If the Christian can walk up to someone and hand them something for a free car wash, the Christian should. I don't care how you do it. Go find somebody's dirty car in the parking lot. Hey, you look like you could use a car wash. You want one? Come to our church. The section ends with Ruth stating that she has found favor with Boaz despite being an outsider. If you're not a believer, this is really what the result of redemption is. To be an outsider and to be welcomed into a family and blessed, this is what God does. Whether it's fostering refugees or, or adopting a child, let me prove it to you. This is from Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God grants us a right relationship with him through Jesus. Here's another one. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. And grace, the word grace means this, unmerited favor. Favor that we didn't earn. By grace you have been saved and also raised us up with him. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift, the free gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of what we do, so that no one can boast. God grants us a new life, not because of what we have done. Here's one more. This is a little later in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel or God's chosen people, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God adopts us into his family and brings us near. All of us need redemption. In various ways, the most significant being the need to be redeemed before God, the need to be reconciled or made right with God. In famine and faithlessness, what we need is favor. Now, the the means of redemption or, or the route to redemption might include some action on our part, but it is ultimately up to God. So if you're here and you feel like at some point in your life, maybe even recently, you've acknowledged, I am a mess. My family is falling apart. Or I realize that when it comes to the end of my life, if I have given account for what it is I've done and who it is I've been, I don't know that I'll be able to measure up before God. You are correct. Now move on that instinct. Come, come and talk to me. Go, go and talk to Pastor Matt. Call into the church office and say, hey, I, I, I need redemption. And the result of redemption is this, salvation in Jesus and adoption into the family of God. There was nothing about Ruth that should have earned Boaz's favor. So too, there's nothing about me that can earn the favor of God. God has to give it in a way that is unmerited, as a free gift. And he's offering that to everyone in this room, no matter who you are or what you've done. Let's pray. God, you are good and you love us. God, we are so thankful for grace. Grace being unmerited favor. The fact that we aren't getting what we deserve, which is separation from you, but we are getting the thing that we don't deserve, which is a life with you. We are so thankful for the fact that we have been redeemed, that we have been reconciled, that we have been justified, that we have been sanctified, that we have been adopted into the family of God. Ultimately, Lord, what we're thankful for is a relationship with you. God, you have the power to change people, change lives, change, change families, change cities. And we're not necessarily even just looking for change. We believe that that is an inevitable result of what happens. But God, we recognize our need for a savior before you. I pray that we would have the courage to maybe acknowledge that this morning, to take action, and then to enjoy the benefits of a relationship with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.